The Isaiah Berlin Lecture, which is given annually in memory of the college's founding president, the renowned philosopher and historian of ideas, is one of the most important events in the college's calendar. In tribute to Berlin's intellectual distinction and profound influence on the history of ideas in the 20th and 21st centuries, some notable scholars and thinkers have given the Berlin Lecture, including Michael Ignatieff, Roy Foster, James Billington, Amartya Sen, Timothy Garton-Ash, Alfred Brendel, Honora O'Neill, Helena Kennedy, and Berlin's editor, Henry Hardy. This year, the 50th anniversary of the college, which Isaiah Berlin founded, we are honored and delighted to welcome as our speaker Kwame Anthony Appiah, Professor of Philosophy and Law at New York University. Professor Appiah is a philosopher, a cultural historian, a scholar-critic in African-American studies, and a researcher, teacher, and writer on ethics, law, democracy, race, and religion. Among a host of world honors, prizes, and titles, he is a global thought leader, a national humanities medalist, ex-president of the Penn American Center, president of the MLA, the Spinoza Lens Laureate of the Spinoza Prize Foundation, which is a prize for internationally renowned thinkers who concern themselves with ethics and society. He's a writer of great influence, intellectual power, range, courage, and wisdom, equally in fiction, autobiography, cultural history, and moral philosophy. In recent books, such as The Honor Code, How Moral Revolutions Happen, and Cosmopolitanism, Ethics in a World of Strangers, He challenges us to think about our social behavior, decisions, values, obligations, and relations with others. He's been described as our postmodern Socrates, scrutinizing the ethical ambivalence of our social and personal identities. Professor Appiah kindly gave the college an interview in advance of tonight's lecture for our website, and I noticed that in it he mentioned Herder, the German 18th century philosopher who was one of Isaiah Berlin's key intellectual figures. And this took me back to some words of Isaiah Berlin about Herder in The Crooked Timber of Humanity, where Berlin describes one of Herder's main ideas thus. Members of one culture can, by the force of imaginative insight, understand the values, the ideals, the forms of life of another culture or society, even those remote in time or space. They may find these values unacceptable, but if they open their minds sufficiently, they can grasp how one might be a full human being with whom one could communicate and at the same time live in the light of values widely different from one's own. I would set this passage alongside a sentence at the start of the Honor Code, which expresses a similar predilection for open-mindedness and imaginative insight. We human beings need others to respond appropriately to who we are and what we do. We need others to recognize us as conscious beings and to acknowledge that we recognize them. I look forward keenly to hearing Professor Appiah speak on cosmopolitan contamination, learning world citizenship. Please make him very welcome. Well, thank you very much for that very generous introduction and for the welcome that I've already had so far and I'm, that I'm looking forward to enjoying um, in the, uh, the time that I'm here. Um, uh, by the end, uh, uh, I will, I hope, have persuaded you that there's a reason why the word contamination occurs in the title of this lecture, but that'll take a while, so you'll have to be patient with that. Um, occasionally, when I'm asked by a stranger on a plane what I do, 
I have made the mistake of responding that I am a philosopher. If what follows is not an embarrassed silence, one of two questions comes next. The first is, what's your philosophy? To which my practiced answer is, everything is more complicated than you first thought. A second, slightly rarer question is, what philosopher do you follow? I've usually replied by trying to explain why contemporary philosophers mostly don't follow anyone. But as I sat down to prepare this lecture, I realized that I have a better answer. For the recent philosopher who's most stressed the complexity and the variety of the kinds of knowledge required for a civilized human life, the philosopher whose motto could have been the one I just cited is surely Isaiah Berlin. And so it is for me not just a great honor, but also a pleasure to have been asked to speak to you in a lecture honoring him, who's a man whose philosophical temperament I so very much admire. The first paper of his I recall reading was an article on verification published at the beginning of the Second World War, or just before, in which he insists on the diversity of our discursive resources and urges that pace the positivists, verification is available only for a very small portion of the things we need to say. Or, as he puts it, in a sentence that is typical in being complex yet clear, careful, but in the heyday of logical positivism, quietly combative, the thesis which I shall try to establish is that the principle of verifiability or verification, after playing a decisive role in the history of modern philosophy by clearing up confusions, exposing major errors, and indicating what were and what were not questions proper for philosophers to ask, which has enabled it to exercise in our day a function not unlike that which Kant's critical method performed for his generation, cannot, for all that, be accepted as a final criterion of empirical significance since such acceptance leads to wholly untenable consequences. I like that sentence a good deal. So next time I am asked to say whom I follow, I think I will say humbly but firmly, Isaiah Berlin. So I want to talk to you today about a topic that I think would have interested him greatly, which is the question of how we should prepare ourselves for our place as citizens, not just of a nation, but of the world. In the course of doing so, I shall have occasion to talk about Herder, a uh, philosopher I learned about from Berlin, and I'll also be exploring the cosmopolitan sensibility that he so engagingly embodied. So I hope that in honoring him, I'm also exploring themes that would have engaged him. Uh, my mother was born not far from here, a few miles south of Burford, to a family whose name can be found in the annals of Oxfordshire back at least at the 13th century. My father was born in Kumasi, the capital of the Asante region of Ghana, and he could trace his ancestors back through several centuries to the beginnings of the Asante kingdom at the turn of the 18th century. So when these two people, born so far apart, met and married in London in the 1950s, many people said that their mixed marriage would be a challenge. And my parents undoubtedly agreed because my father was a Methodist and my mother was an Anglican. <laughs> um, so I was baptized a Methodist and then sent to Anglican schools. And I went to Sunday school with, at a non-denominational church of which my mother was a member. Uh, St. George's was my mother's church. She was a member and an elder of it for more than 50 years in Ghana. And I'm a child of that mother and that church. I learned Christianity and its moral ideals, first of all, from them. But I also learned something else from both my parents, something they exemplified when they decided to become man and wife. 
And that was a kind of openness to peoples and cultures beyond the ones they themselves were raised in. My mother learned this, I'm sure, in part from her parents, who had friends in many continents at a time when many English people were extremely provincial. My father learned it as much as anything else from Kumasi, which, like many old capital cities, is a polyglot, multicultural place open to the world. But he learned it, too, from his schooling. Because, like many of those who had the rare opportunity, the precious opportunity to get a formal secondary school education in the far-flung reaches of the British Empire before the Second World War, he was educated in the classics. My Ghanaian father loved Latin. By his bedside, he kept not only his Bible, but works by Cicero and Marcus Aurelius, followers both of the sort of Stoicism that were central to the intellectual and moral life of the Roman elite by the first century, when Christianity was beginning to spread through the Hellenistic world of the Eastern Empire. In his spiritual testimony, testament to us, his children, he told us that we should always remember that we were citizens of the world. Words, of course, that Marcus Aurelius would have recognized and agreed with. Marcus Aurelius, who wrote, after all, how close is the kinship between a man and the whole human race, for it is a community not of a little blood or seed, but of the spirit. Now, globalization has made it increasingly natural to think of our species as a community, in a certain sense, as Aurelius did. That was what was meant by the now tired phrase uh, popularized by Marshall McLuhan, um, the global village. And this formulation was coined precisely to be paradoxical, because however much we are now connected, the relations between us, from Bombay to Birmingham or Accra to Adelaide, are hardly similar to those of village life. Our most basic social identities, the identities that we call tribal in Ghana, or the ethnic groups of the Balkans, or the modern multicultural city, are not village identities. Everyone knows you can't have face-to-face -face relations with 7 billion people, but you can't have face-to-face -face relations with 100,000, or a million, or 10 million people, with your fellow citizens of Swindon, or Swaziland, or Sweden, either. And we humans have long had practice in identifying in towns, cities, and nations with groups on this grander scale. Rome, after all, at the time of the birth of Christ, already had a population of around a million people. And being a city, it was the first city in the world that did. And uh, being a citizen of that city and its empire was, as St. Paul famously insisted, a, uh, an important, a substantial thing. To be Kiwis Romanus, uh, like St. Paul, was to be bound together with other Romans, not by mutual knowledge or recognition, not by village relations, but by language, law, literature. Increasingly, since the 18th century, people all around the planet have grown into national affiliations that extend over territories that would take weeks or months to traverse on foot, covering thousands of villages, towns, and cities, millions of people, sometimes tens, hundreds of millions, and often dozens of languages or hundreds of languages and uh, thousands of uh, barely mutually intelligible dialects. Hence, nations differ from the polis so substantially in scale there is no space large enough to encompass in a single gathering the free citizens of almost all the nations of the world today that relations between citizens must of necessity be relations between strangers. So if nationals are, between fellow citizens, must be relations in a certain sense between strangers. And if nationals are bound together, it's on the Roman model by what I just call language, law, and literature. 
And if they share an experience of events, it's through their shared, it's not through the direct experience of the events, it's through shared exposure to narrations of those events, whether they're in folktales or novels or movies, documentaries, newspapers and television, radio, and now the web, or in the national histories taught in modern national schools. Now, narrative was, of course, central to earlier forms of political identity. The Homeric poems for the Greek city-states, the Augustan poetry of Virgil for a cultivated Roman elite, the epic of Sundeata for Malinke societies in West Africa, the story of Shaka in the 19th century for the Zulu nation. But these, there's something distinctive, I think, about the new national stories because they bind citizens not in a shared uh, vertical relation to gods and kings and heroes, but as horizontally, as participants in a common story. Modern political communities, that is, are bound together through representations in which the community itself is an actor, and what binds each of us to the community, and thus to each other, is our participation through our national identity in that common action. If the citizens of the world are to be a global community, as Aurelius suggested, here is one potential source of solidarity that is already on the right scale. It's already on the scale of billions in the case of India and China. But the trouble with borrowing a rhetoric of fellow feeling from the nation is that the national story is so much a story of a nation among nations. It's an international narrative. And the standard national story creates solidarity by contrasting what we do with what they do, usually, of course, to their disadvantage. If there's no collectivity outside the human community to serve as antagonist to the human protagonist, can we really tell stories that will bind us all together as a species? So we can wonder whether human beings are capable of imaginative identification as a global community and worry that the human species might fail to engage our sympathies because, to put it crudely, solidarity may require enemies. Robert Ardrey who wrote some of the first popular books about human evolution, which impressed me very much in the 1960s when I was growing up. Uh, so it's the sort of book that impresses you when you're 16 or 17, but nevertheless, he once proposed the following formula. A, he said, equals E plus H. The degree of amity, A, depends on enmity, E, and hazard, H. Well, we don't yet have a common human enemy, is the point I've been making, except in the movies, uh, so though those movies about the common enemy are often very popular. So uh, E isn't going to give us a resource here if Ardre was right. But our planet does face many H's, many hazards today. So one might be tempted by this formula to look at our shared sense of human endangerment in the face of, say, our ecological challenges and to think of that as something that might bring us together. Unfortunately... As you may have noticed, that doesn't seem to be working. But perhaps this was the wrong place to start. Nations are also sources of law, of public norms, of regulation and order. If we're to be a global community, shouldn't we take the direct route? Why shouldn't we become a single polity? Why not transfer elements of sovereignty to the global level, creating a single mega-state? Why should the world not be a single polis held together by the shared institutions of uh, a common, a common 
uh, mega state. Well, it'll help, I think, to return more explicitly to the philosophical traditions of cosmopolitanism with its understanding, with their understanding of cosm uh, citizenship. Cosmos, after all, is just the Greek for world, so a cosmopolitan should etymologically at least be someone who thinks the world is, so to speak, our shared hometown, our shared polis, reproducing, in effect, exactly the paradox of the global village. And so far as I know, the first person to claim that he was a citizen of the world, a cosmopolites, uh, was, was, was a man called Diogenes, one of the most colorful of the founders of the philosophical movement called Cynicism, born sometime in the late 5th century in Sinope on the southern coast of the Black Sea in what is now Turkey, so in Asia Minor. The cynics rejected tradition and local loyalty and generally opposed what everybody else thought of as civilized behavior. Diogenes lived, tradition reports, in a large terracotta pot. It is said that he did what my nanny would have called his business in public, and if you don't know what my nanny would have called his business, she wouldn't have wanted me to tell you. <laughs> he also did what Playboy has made its business in public, too. So he was a sort of 4th uh, century BCE performance artist. And in fact, Diogenes' nickname in some quarters was Diogenes the Dog. And since kines in Greek means doggy, that's where the movement got its name. So the cynics are just the doggy philosophers. Uh, you will not be surprised to hear that Diogenes was kicked out of Sinope. Still, for better or worse, this is the guy who's reported to have said he was a citizen of the world for the first time, or to have developed that view. And this was obviously a metaphor, because citizens, there is no cosmopolis, there is no state for us to share. Uh, so like anyone who adopts a metaphor, he had to decide how to make it work. What, what could it mean to say that we're fellow citizens if there isn't a polis of which we can be? citizens. Now one thing Diogenes didn't mean was precisely the thing that I just suggested we might do. He did not mean that he favored a single world government. Um, famously, he once met someone who did, um, a fellow called Alexander of Macedon, who favored, as you know, government of the world by Alexander of Macedon. And the story, and almost achieved it. Uh, if he lived longer, he might have. The story goes that Alexander came across Diogenes one sunny day, this time for some reason not with the terracotta pot, and the Macedonian world conqueror, who was Aristotle's student, had been brought up properly to respect philosophers, asked Diogenes if there was anything he could do for him, and his famous reply was, yes, you can get out of my light. This suggests that Diogenes was not a fan of Alexander's and of his project of global domination. And this may have upset Alexander, because one of the sayings of Alexander that's come down to us is, uh, if I hadn't been Alexander, I would have liked to have been Diogenes. Uh, so it must have been a bit disappointing to, to meet your hero and discover that all he wanted you to do was to stop blocking the sun. Um, uh, you know, great, great imperialists don't like being told that there's nothing you can, that they can do for you. Um, so Diogenes didn't believe in, in he didn't want you know, philosopher kings for the Greeks, so he certainly wouldn't have wanted them for the planet. And the first thing I'd like to take from Diogenes in interpreting the metaphor of global citizenship is we don't need world government, not even by uh, Aristotle's, in some ways, most successful student. We can think of ourselves, Diogenes wanted to say, as fellow citizens, even if we don't, we, we aren't and don't want to be, members of a single sovereign political community subject to a single government. So whatever we mean by shared global citizenship, it doesn't have to mean a single world government. 
A second idea that I want to take from Diogenes uh, is that we should care about the fate, nevertheless, of all our fellow human beings, not just the ones in our own literal polis. We should care about the, uh, not just about our own political community, but about the citizens of every political community. And just as within your community you should care about every one of your fellow citizens, so in the world as a whole you have to care about your fellow world citizens. And, and this is a third idea that we might ascribe to Diogenes, we can borrow good ideas from all over the world, not just from our own society. We can learn from others. It's worth listening to others because they may have something to teach us, and it's worthwhile for them to listen to us because they may have something to learn. The learning can go both ways. Now, we don't have writings from Diogenes, no doubt in part because, like Socrates, he believed that conversation is a better way of communicating than writing, which is, after all, something you can do to people who can't answer back. So that's the final thing I want to take from Diogenes, this idea that that conversation is a central thing that humans do. It's one of the central modes of human interaction. And I'll say a bit more about what I mean by that in a bit. So these these ideas, I, a 21st century American citizen of Anglo-Ghanaian ancestry, want to borrow from a citizen of Sinope who dreamed of global citizenship 24 centuries ago. One, we don't need a single world government, but two, we must nevertheless care for the fate of all human beings inside and outside our own societies. And three, we have much to gain from conversation with one another across our differences. Uh, When the spirit of cosmopolitanism was taken up again in the European Enlightenment, I elide um, 1,500 years here, uh, in fact, more than 1,500 years, uh, when when it's taken up again by philosophers like Kant, it has the same core, it seems to me. That is, global concern for humanity without a wish for world government. Indeed, our duties to guests visiting from other nations occupy a central place in Kant's cosmopolitan arguments in the essay on perpetual Peace. He's assuming that we'll go on being in separate states. He's still talking about a cosmopolitan engagement. So modern cosmopolitanism, and this is something that I think contemporary people find hard to grasp, um, grew with national, nationalism. It's not an alternative to it. It's a complement to it in the philosophical form that was developed uh, beginning in the 18th century. And at its heart was not just the idea of universality, not just the idea of concern for all humanity, but also the value of different human ways of going on. And that's why it doesn't go with world government. Because different communities are entitled to live according to different standards. Because human beings can flourish in many different kinds of society. Because there are so many values worth living by, and nobody and no single society can explore them all. That's Berlin. Uh, You can find this cosmopolitanism, of course, in Heather. Uh, who's both a cosmopolitan and a romantic, but also a German nationalist. Herder believed that the German-speaking peoples, uh, in this he was agreeing with Fichte, were entitled to live together in a single political community, but he also saw that that was true for everybody, that it wasn't just true for the Germans, it was true for the Slavs and so on as well. And so unlike many Germans of his day, he believed in the political self-determination of the peoples of Europe indeed, in principle, of the world. And, of course, you find cosmopolitanism, as I said, in Kant's plan for a League of Nations, which is the forerunner of the UN. Now, it's worth noting here, I think, that there was a problem with Herder's picture of the nation. 
as a cultural unity. Herder believed that nations were held together by what came to be called a Volksgeist. This is not Herder's word, but it's a word that is often used to characterize his view, um, which means, of course, the spirit of a folk or a folk, um, and is expressed in its arts and music, but especially in its language. This, again, is an idea in Fichte. A spirit which could be found both in the high canon of the poets in Helderlin and Goethe, but also in the popular song and tale of the ordinary folk. When the Brothers Grimm collect those fairy tales, they're collecting them as expressions of the German Sprachgeist, as expressions of the German spirit. That's why they're collecting them. That's why they're the same people who did the first German dictionary, the great Deutsches Wörterbuch. Herder rejected Cosmopolis because he saw the culture-bound nation unified by a shared spiritual life as the natural unit of government. But Pache Herder, the modern cosmopolitan, can't have this reason for rejecting Cosmopolis because it presupposes a false picture of modern cultural life. Literature and music and mass-mediated culture and sport are all, in fact, quite transnational in their influences and their effects. The field of comparative literature began in part because you couldn't make sense of whole swathes of literature in, say, German without understanding its relationship with writings in English, French, Latin, and Greek. Westphalia, the Treaty of Westphalia, and the reorganization of Europe in the centuries that followed produced a world, in fact, in which hardly any nations fitted the Hedarian picture of the homogeneous monocultural nation living under a single government. And those few states that do fit something like that picture have usually been forced into it over a couple of centuries of violent and bloody civil strife. The homogeneous nation is the result, not the precondition, of modern statehood in the rare places where it exists. Eugen Weber taught a generation of students of French history that as late as 1893, much as a quarter of the then 30 million citizens of metropolitan France hadn't mastered the French language. This is 1893, a long time after the revolution. And as Linda Colley argued later in her marvelous book, Britain's Forging the Nation, she means forging in every conceivable sense of that word, the sense of a common identity here didn't come into being because of an integration and homogenization of disparate cultures. Instead, Britishness was superimposed over an array of internal differences in response to contact with the other, and above all, in response to conflict with the other. Uh, this is Britain, after all, so the other here is France. David Bell, in The Cult of the Nation, has made the converse argument for France in the last half of the 18th century. The notions of nation and patrie that were developed in that period were developed in part against the idea of the, bar of the barbarous uh, citizens of Albion, people like you. What makes France French or Britain British? It doesn't much matter what you say. Language, state institutions, cuisine, the laicite of the republic, the empire, Protestantism, none of these was ever a very good response. And things have gotten even worse for the prospects of that story since the end of the empires because large numbers of people have entered both countries whose language, cuisine, religion, and relation to empire are hardly those of the old descendants of the old citizens of the imperial center. This is not just a problem on the two shores of the English Channel. Germany struggles with the distinct political legacies of two halves separated uh, after World War II, less than a century after Germany first became a nation state at the end of the Franco-Prussian War. 
Uh, so it was united again only after the Cold War came to an end. Italy was united. Uh, I've just come from Milan this morning, so I should say, to the extent that it is, uh, <laughs> by the Savoyard monarchs in the mid-19th century. But like Weber's France, contained a great variety of mutually unintelligible dialects. Even now, Italy officially recognizes 20 regional dialects and acknowledges the presence of small minorities speaking Albanian, Ladin, Friulian, Greek, Occitan, Sudtyrolean, uh, Slovenian, and so on. And, of course, uh, speakers of Somali and Ethiopian and other, I mean, Amharic, and other legacies of um, Italy's brief excursion into empire. And it's conventional in Italy to describe the version of the language taught in schools and printed in most newspapers as lingua toscana in bocca romana, the language of Tuscany in a Roman accent. It's acknowledging the diversity of its origins within Italy. If the states of Western Europe, where the Hadarian ideology was developed, do not fit the mold of the monoethnic nation state, it's hard to find anything like it anywhere else either. India, China, Nigeria, each has literally hundreds of languages and ethnic groups. The United States, where most people speak some sort of English, is not a place that could plausibly be described as having a single national culture. Everything that is normally said to be American, from McDonald's to Hollywood to consumer capitalism, even Barack Obama, is found elsewhere as well and is, in any case, not much appreciated by large numbers of Americans. Ask the Amish of Pennsylvania what they think about McDonald's and Hollywood and consumer capitalism. There are no doubt candidates for Hadarian states. I might give you Swaziland. I might give you Japan, where 99% of the population says that it's Japanese. But I should point out about Japan that their script is Chinese, their largest religion is Indian, and there are 15 Japanese languages listed on ethnologue.com, including, of course, Japanese sign language. So by and large, people do not live in monocultural, monoreligious, monolingual nation-states, and by and large, they never did. So we don't need to worry that the cultural diversity of the world rules out a shared sense of identity. If that were true, national identity would be impossible too. Pluralism begins at home. So cosmopolitanism is indeed universalistic. It believes that every human being matters and that we have shared obligations to care for one another. But what distinguishes it from most universalist philosophies is that it accepts the wide range of legitimate human diversity within, that's one point I've been stressing, and across societies. And that respect comes, uh, for, for diversity comes, again, from something that I think we can trace back to the time of Diogenes, which is a tolerance for other people's choices of how to live and humility about what we ourselves know. Conversations across identities across religions, races, ethnicities, nationalities, are worthwhile because through conversation you can learn from people with different, even incompatible ideas from your own. And it's worthwhile too because if you accept that you live in a world with many different kinds of people and you're going to try and live respectfully in peace with them, you, don't, you need to understand each other whether or not you agree. Again, that was the point made in the quotation from Azar Berlin earlier, or one of them. So I think a modern education needs to prepare us for just such conversations. But we should bear in mind that the routines of peaceful cohabitation uh, where they exist are as much a matter of practice, of habit, of sentiment, and of 
unconscious life as they are of reflection and theory of the sort that I've been talking about. Social psychology teaches us that bigotry towards members of one's own community is something that can be both created and destroyed by the circumstances in which people are brought up. Long ago, the social psychologist Gordon Allport argued for what is called by social psychologists the contact hypothesis. And roughly, the the first formulation of it in his book on prejudice um, goes on for quite a long time, so I'm going to give you a rough account of what it is. Um, In in social psychology, you're allowed to have large, long paragraphs uh, articulating your theories. But roughly what it says is that contact between individuals of different groups makes hostility and prejudice less likely if it occurs in a framework that meets a few important conditions. And crucially, it must be on terms of rough equality and it must be in activities where shared goals are pursued in the context of mutual dependency. So an an application of this, one reason that America's racially integrated military services Uh, can take in people from a racially divided society and put out men and women who are on average less racist when they come out than when they come in is because of the truth of the contact hypothesis. It's one reason I suspect why straight soldiers who've worked together with openly gay comrades are less homophobic than soldiers who used to have to work without openly gay comrades. Used to be, not without gay comrades, just without openly gay ones. It's why in America, white football and basketball players are more relaxed around black people and more engaged with racial justice than some of the people in the places that they came from. So it's this that makes the segregation of communities within a single society potentially so disastrous. For segregation makes it unlikely that children will meet and collaborate across identities, acquiring the experience of mutual reliance on terms of rough equality. Now, we can do something about this in principle within the nation because we can desegregate our communities and our schools. But what can we do across nations since nations are, as it were, by definition, communities of people segregated from other nations. The answer, I think, is simple enough. Um, We should be doing, so far as we can, what schools and colleges around the world have increasingly been doing. That is, we should be encouraging young people to go abroad and work and study with young people in other nations and invite young people of other nations to come and study with us. Cross-national educational projects, whether pursued in the virtual common space of the internet or the literal common space of study abroad, are absolutely crucial, if this is right, to a cosmopolitan education, to an education fit for a global age. And the good that it brings is a matter of practical habit, I've been insisting, uh, at least as much as theoretical conviction. Here's a small fictional moment that exemplifies, I think, brilliantly what I have in mind. In the final episode of the first season of the television series Skins, which was, as I'm sure you all know, about a group of teenagers in Bristol, there's a moving moment at the birthday party of one of the characters. Anwar is an English teenager of South Asian ancestry, and his father is a devout Muslim. Anwar's best friend, Maxi, is uh, is, uh, white, English, and gay. And he's been waiting for Anwar to inform his parents that his best friend is gay, which Anwar isn't. And Anwar, regarding his father as a devout Muslim, has been disinclined to do that. So Maxi is standing outside the party, refusing to come in, because he says, I'll come in as soon as you've told them. While they're talking, Anwar's father comes out, and he says to Maxi, come in, my wife made this special spicy curry that I know you like. And as Anwar's father is talking... 
Anwar in the background finally says for the first time, uh, Dad, Maxie's gay. And his father ignores him. So then Maxie himself says, I'm gay, Mr. Corral. I always have been. And there's a long silence in which the two friends wait anxiously to hear what the father will say. And then he says this. I think this is a brilliant piece of script writing. It's a stupid, messed up world. I've got my God. He speaks to me every day. Some things I just can't work out. So I leave them be okay, even if I think they're wrong. Because I know one day he will make me understand. I've got that trust. It's called belief. I'm a lucky man. Right? Come, Maxie. The food is ready. This is how things are with people who are in conversation with one another. They do not have to agree. They have only to accept one another. And they can do that without a theory or a principle because being together has generated commitments that can transcend even serious disagreement. This kind of cosmopolitan cohabitation is something that we all actually know how to do. But we're only going to bother to take this step if we're already in conversation with one another. And as I say, that means sharing our thoughts about the things we agree about and about the things we disagree about, about the big things and the small things, about soccer, and maybe that is a big thing. It was meant to be an example of a small thing. But uh, um, television shows, that was meant to be another small thing. Uh, Movies, and this is meant to be a really small thing. The gossip about other people in the college. And if we are to bring the whole world into our conversational orbit we'll have to spend some of our time in primary and secondary education and beyond to the extent that we can in conversation with people who are in some sense elsewhere. And that conversation will work best if it includes time spent together with people from elsewhere. Because however much you study about a place intellectually, I'm sorry, however much you know about a place intellectually, the study of anthropology or sociology or history or literature or economics, as anyone who's traveled with a group of young people knows, Uh, Nothing prepares you for the everyday differences in experience, the new tastes, the strange smells, the unfamiliar sounds of a culture you haven't previously inhabited. This is not the advice of a relativist. I am not saying that you must accept anything at all. If Mr. Corral had wanted to kill Maxie or have him locked up, if Maxie had wanted to curse the prophet for being a homophobe, they would each have crossed a boundary that made cohabitation impossible, at least until one of them changed his mind. But Mr. Corral begins in what seems to me exactly the right place, with an admission that he can't work out everything, that the world is hard to understand, and he may not be right about everything. He doesn't abandon his belief that homosexuality is wrong. He lays it aside as something to work out later. Right now, what matters is celebrating his son's 17th birthday with his son's best friend, This works in practice. It does not need a theory. I'm a philosopher. I like theories. But theory isn't the only thing that matters. So to repeat, Cosmopolitan's ideals are a practice as well as a theory. And the point of study abroad as a Cosmopolitan educational practice is that there's all the difference in the world between savoir and connaître, between knowing about something and encountering it, knowing it vis-à-vis, face-to-face. Learning to live with difference involves more than knowing about it. And spending time elsewhere, time structured in the right way, of course, because the wrong kind of overseas experience can turn you into a xenophobe, is crucial to developing face-to-face knowledge. There's a very funny passage in um, Chesterton's essays about his visit to America, uh, which begin by saying something like, travel narrows. 
He says, uh, I, he said, I like the Americans very much until I met them. <laughs> so you've got, to do it, you've got to do it in the right way. <laughs> but in remaining open to the global, cosmopolitanism I endorse doesn't permit you, doesn't require you, doesn't allow you to abandon the local, your own locality. There's a striking passage to this point in George Eliot's novel, uh, Daniel Deronda, which was published in 1876. This was, as it happens, the year when England's first and so far last Jewish Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, entered the House of Lords as Earl of Beaconsfield. Disraeli, though baptized and brought up in the Church of England, was the son of a man who was a significant figure in, the, in, the, in his synagogue, and he always had a proud consciousness of his Jewish ancestry, which, given his name, it would have been hard to avoid. His name was the Israeli. But Deronda, who's been raised like uh, Israeli in England as a Christian gentleman, discovers his Jewish and, uh, identity ancestry only as an adult, and his response is to commit himself to the fur furtherance of what he calls his hereditary people. Here's, um, here's George Eliot. It was as if he had found an added soul in finding his ancestry, his judgment no longer wandering in the mazes of impartial sympathy, but choosing with the noble partiality which is man's best strength the closer fellowship that makes sympathy practical, exchanging that bird's-eye reasonableness which soars to avoid preference and loses all sense of quality for the generous reasonableness of drawing shoulder to shoulder with men of like inheritance. Now notice that in claiming his Jewish loyalty here, his added soul, Deronda is not rejecting either his Englishness or his loyalty to humanity. And Eliot's talk of the closer fellowship that makes sympathy practical echoes a long-ago claim by Cicero that society and human fellowship will be best served if we confer the most kindness on those with whom we are most closely associated. So a creed that were to disdain the partialities of kinfolk and community has no future. Cosmopolitanism begins with a respect for roots. How can one celebrate the cultural specificities of other places if one does not value one's own? So if we're all now citizens of the world as well as of a nation, as I've been arguing, our educations need to reflect this fact. And that is why the ancient ideal of cosmopolitanism, I think, has become part of the essential toolbox for human beings in a way that it really wasn't in the time of Diogenes. Because there are, there are obvious conditions on making this sense of citizenship real. You have to know about the lives of other citizens, and on the other hand, you have to have the capacity to affect them. And Diogenes didn't know about most people. He didn't even know that South America existed. Uh, he didn't know about China and Japan. He didn't know about equatorial Africa. He didn't even know about the ancestors of the Norwegians and the Swedes. And nothing he did was likely to have much impact on them, certainly as far as he knew, either. And as I say, you can't give real meaning to the idea that we're all fellow citizens unless we can affect each other and know about each other. And, of course, that's the world we're now in. Uh, obviously, the global media that we live with mean we can now know about one another, uh, especially in a kind of micro way through the web. And global interconnections, economic, political, military, ecological, mean that we inevitably do, will, must affect each other. So, of course, now we do need the cosmopolitan spirit. It was just invented a couple of thousand years early. The spirit thinks of us all as bound together across the species, but also accepts that we will each make different choices within and across nations about how to make our lives. 
Teaching in schools and colleges and universities is not indoctrination, so putting these ideas into the curriculum for general education is not a matter of commanding or trapping people into accepting them. It's making them available as an option, an approach to the world that many will find useful, an approach that has critics as well as defenders. And it's in that spirit that I urge that it be taken up as one element of a modern education, not just in college, but before. Because cosmopolitanism, as I've been defending it, is this double-stranded tradition. Uh, its slogan, uh, the slogan I have for it is universality, but plus difference. And I want to mention some reasons why cosmopolitans accept, indeed celebrate, the wide range of legitimate human diversity uh, more explicitly. Why, after all, shouldn't we do, in the name of universal concern, what missionaries of many faiths have done? Why shouldn't we go out into the world guided by the one truth, the one way, and help others to live by it too? Well, one reason is that cosmopolitans inherit this recognition of the shortcomings of our human capacity to grasp the truth, a recognition that you could also acquire from reading Isaiah Berlin on verification. Cosmopolitanism grew up this philosophical doctrine of fallibilism. Fallibilist knows, as Mr. Corral knew, that he or she is likely to make mistakes. It's not that we don't take our own views seriously. We have views, but we're always open to the possibility that it may turn out that they're wrong. And if I'm wrong about something, then I'm going to learn from others, perhaps, even though they, of course, are going to be wrong about lots of other things. But there's an important second reason why we think people should be allowed, where feasible, to go their own way. It's a reason whose roots are, I think, in a more modern idea, the idea that each human individual is charged with ultimate responsibility for his or her own life. This is, of course, also one of the themes of the work of Isaiah Berlin. Each of us has a life to live, Our pursuit of the good life is constrained by morality, or should be, but it's also constrained by historical circumstances and physical and mental endowments. I was born in the wrong place and with the wrong parentage to be an American president, thank God, and I have the wrong body for motherhood. I lack the patience to do good laboratory science. But each of us has a great variety of decisions to make in shaping our lives, even though there are all these constraining factors. Everybody should have a great variety of decisions to make in shaping a human life. And a philosophical liberal like me believes that these choices belong in the end to the person whose life it is. The dignity of human beings resides in part in their capacity for and their right to self-management, which includes the right to work out how to meet the legitimate moral demands of other people and to work in company with others to pursue our projects, private and common as John Stuart Mill put it on liberty, a work that I, my, uh, the, f- the philosopher I follow, Isaiah Berlin, also admired greatly, if a person possesses any tolerable amount of common sense and experience, his own mode of laying his existence out is the best, not because it is the best in itself, but because it is his own mode. There's a nice Akan proverb from my home in Asante that captures something like this thought. The people of Bremen make charcoal, while the people of Concori eat water snails. To each his own. And because cosmopolitanism is fallibilist, cosmopolitan conversation across cultures and political and social and economic and religious boundaries is not about conversion. It's as much about learning as about teaching, 
it's much about listening as about talking. So that even when I'm trying to persuade someone that what they see is right is wrong, I can hear their arguments that what I think is wrong is right. Now, global conversation, like global citizenship, is a metaphor. It needs, just as the metaphor of global citizenship needed, construal. Because obviously, as I said at the start, you and I can't literally converse with the other seven billion odd strangers, some of them very odd, who inhabit the planet, and they can't all converse with each other. Mathematicians in the room will tell you how much time and how many conversations that would take. But a global community of cosmopolitans will want to learn about other ways of life through anthropology and history, through novels and movies, through news stories in newspapers, on radio and television, on the web, as well as through uh, the kind of travel that I was urging as part of a cosmopolitan education. And that cosmopolitan spirit should guide the teaching, I believe, of the social sciences and the humanities as well. It's a spirit that favors impurity over purity, bridges over walls, multilingualism over monolingualism, and the recognition of complexity over simplification. It is, I suppose, the spirit of Isaiah Berlin. And it's one profoundly rooted in our literary traditions. And the hour here is humanity. So let me offer in closing just one more exemplar of the spirit I have in mind, one that will, I hope, finally make plain the significance of this lecture's title. Publius Terentius Affair, whom we know as Terence, was born near Carthage and taken to Rome, probably as a slave, in the early 2nd century of the uh, BCE, before the Common Era. Affair meant, strictly speaking, that he came from the area around Carthage because the Afri were a tribe around Carthage, but eventually, of course, it comes to mean African. His plays, witty, elegant works that are, like Plautus's earlier, less cultivated works, essentially what we have of Roman comedy, were widely admired among the city's literary elite. Terence's own mode of writing, which involved freely incorporating any number of earlier Greek plays into a single Latin one, was known to Roman literateurs as contaminatio, contamination. It's an evocative term. When people speak for an ideal of cultural purity, for sustaining the authentic culture of Asante or uh, of rural America or of the Amish or whoever, I find myself drawn to counter, to, to contamination as the name for a counter-ideal. Terence had a notably firm grasp on the range of human variety. So many men, so many opinions was a line of his, quot homines tot sententiae. And in his comedy, The Self-Tormentor, you find what I think can be said to be the golden rule of cosmopolitanism, homo sum humani nil ame alienum puto, I am human, nothing human is alien to me. But people forget the context in which this remark, uh, these sententiae were taken out of the plays, they were taken out of their dramatic context. Let's remember what the context was. A busybody farmer named Cremes is told by his neighbor to mind his own affairs, to stop looking over the wall and meddling. And this homo sum is Cremes' breezy rejoinder. It isn't a high philosophical principle, it's just the case for gossip. That is what is not alien to the person who finds nothing human alien. It's the gossip about everybody else. Uh, and the fascination, that is, with the small doings of other people. And this has always been a powerful force for conversation among cultures. 
The ideal of contamination has few exponents more eloquent than Salman Rushdie, who's insisted that the novel that occasioned his fatwa, quote, celebrates hybridity, impurity, intermingling, the transformation that comes from new and unexpected combinations of human beings, cultures, ideas, politics, movies, and songs. It rejoices in mongrelization and fears the absolution, absolutism of the pure. Melange, hotchpotch, a bit of this and a bit of that is how newness enters the world. Now, that's the end of the quote. No doubt there can be an easy and spurious utopianism of mixture, as there certainly is of purity and authenticity. But I think the larger truth is on the side of contamination, the endless process of imitation and revision from everywhere. A tenable global ethics has to temper a respect for difference with a respect for the freedom of actual human beings to make their own choices. That's why cosmopolitanism does not insist that everyone become cosmopolitan. We know we don't have all the answers. We're humble enough to think that we might learn from strangers, but not too humble to think that strangers can't learn from us. Few remember what Kremes says after the homo sum remark. Let me tell you. He says, if you're right, I'll do what you do. If you're wrong, I'll set you straight. Terence's contaminations are not an exception. They are the normal form of creative life. One of Goethe's great poetic cycles is the Westöstliche Divan, which is inspired by the 14th century poetry of Hafiz, whose tomb in Shiraz is still a place of Persian pilgrimage. Among Shakespeare's more important inferences are Livy, a Roman born in Padua, from whom he got Menenius's parable of the belly in Coriolanus, was a time when all the mem- body's members rebelled against the belly, and Petrarch, whose sonnets are part of the background to all the major English sonnets of that time. Finally, and from the other side of the world, consider Matsuo Basho, the magnificent haiku master of the 17th century, one of my mother's favorite poets, who was shaped to a large degree by Zen Buddhism, which means that an Indian prince, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, is part of Basho's heritage. The point, then, is that wherever you start in studying the cultural artifacts that humanists care about, you will soon be led across boundaries. As Azala Berlin knew as well as anyone, parochialism in the humanities is an obstacle to understanding. so much. It's, um, among many other things, uh, very uh, encouraging and heartening for us to hear our college motto uh, being placed uh, in its context, which, as you all know, is nothing human is alien to me. Uh, at a time uh, of the debate over the referendum, uh, the candidacy of Donald Trump and the world crisis over the refugees, it is timely and heartening to be reminded in such eloquent, lucid, scholarly and civilised terms that conversations across identities are worthwhile and of the practical importance of cross-national education. We're very grateful to you for telling us what it can mean to be a citizen of the world.